Caucus Media Networks. This is America's First News. This morning with your host, Gordon Deal. Biden or strike. Good morning. I'm Jennifer Kashinka in for Gordon Deal along with Nicole Murray on this Tuesday, December 26th. Here's what we have for you this hour. The U.S. has struck drone facilities used by Iran-sponsored militias in Iraq. Israel's war cabinet met to discuss a three-step plan put forward by Egypt for ending the war in Gaza. Blizzards and ice are making for a white but dangerous Christmas in the Plains states. And Nikki Haley, the only woman in the GOP field, is walking a fine line when it comes to gender. The GOP isn't uh, big on identity politics, so this is, is something that she does fairly subtly. Um, there is a group that her campaign started in April uh, called Women for Nikki, so they definitely do have, you know, reach out to uh, women and, and want to, uh, you know, pay some special attention to women voters. John McCormick of The Wall Street Journal will be here in about 10 minutes with that story. U.S. military carried out retaliatory precision airstrikes in Iraq after a drone attack by Iran-aligned militants left one U.S. service member in critical condition and two others wounded. We get more from this morning's Mike Gavin. At President Biden's direction, the U.S. military carried out the strikes yesterday, likely killing a number of militants and destroying multiple facilities used by the group. In a statement, the head of the U.S. Central Command said the strikes are intended to hold accountable those elements directly responsible for attacks on coalition forces in Iraq and Syria and degrade their ability to continue attacks. The Pentagon did not disclose details about the identity of the service member who was critically wounded or offer more details on the injuries sustained in the attack. The White House National Security Council said Biden was briefed on the attack on Monday morning and ordered the Pentagon to prepare response options against those responsible. Jen. Thanks, Mike. Monday's military attack in U.S. retaliation is the latest back and forth since a surge in violence began in mid-October when Iran-aligned militias started targeting U.S. assets in Iraq and Syria over Washington's backing of Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Israel and Hamas have given cool public receptions to an Egyptian proposal to end their bitter war. But the long-standing enemies stopped short of rejecting the plan altogether, raising the possibility of a new round of diplomacy to halt a devastating Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip. The Egyptian plan calls for a phased hostage release and the formation of a Palestinian government of experts to administer the Gaza Strip and occupied West Bank. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did not comment directly on the proposal proposal, but speaking to members of his party, he said he was determined to press ahead with Israel's offensive. Senior advisor Mark Regev says Hamas must release hostages. By beefing up our military efforts, by destroying their military machine, by taking out their senior commanders, we're placing pressure on them, which makes them more desperate for a, a timeout for some sort of temporary ceasefire. And we're willing to give that if they release hostages. An Egyptian official said the details were worked out with the Gulf nation of Qatar and presented to Israel, Hamas, the U.S. and European governments. Egypt and Qatar both mediate between Israel and Hamas, while the U.S. is Israel's closest ally and a key power in the region. The Egyptian proposal falls short of Israel's declared goal of crushing Hamas. It also appears to be at odds with Israel's insistence on maintaining military control over Gaza for an extended period after the war. 
A major winter storm is sweeping across the plains and upper Midwest with heavy snow, freezing rain and strong winds making for dangerous travel conditions during the busy holiday week. Blizzards with wind gusts of up to 75 miles per hour today could topple trees and power lines and bring whiteout conditions that make travel difficult to near impossible. Parts of Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, Colorado and Wyoming are under blizzard warnings. The storm hit parts of the region Monday and driving conditions rapidly deteriorated across Nebraska. Cars collided and slid off roads and tractor trailers jackknifed and got stuck on eastbound Interstate 80 near York, Nebraska in the morning and early afternoon. State Patrol spokesman Cody Thomas on ABC. We've seen a number of incidents, uh, thankfully only a couple that have involved injuries that I'm aware of, uh, but the roads are uh, definitely being affected by the winter weather today. Meanwhile, Southwest Airlines canceled hundreds of flights Sunday and more than 100 yesterday after dense fog snarled operations at Chicago's Midway International Airport. Jennifer Kashenka in for Gordon Deal along with Nicole Murray. Happy holidays to you. In a party that often rejects identity politics, Nikki Haley is trying to walk a fine line as the only woman in the Republican presidential field. John McCormick, national political reporter at the Wall Street Journal, has written about Haley's campaign strategy and joins us now. John, how much has Haley referred to herself as being a woman? You know, it, it depends on the situation. Uh, sometimes she does a fair bit and sometimes she doesn't at all. Um, you know, she's She's talked about her high heels sort of famously as part of her political rhetoric for the last decade. So it, you know, she does bring it up and she, you know, she likes to comment that heels are good for kicking, uh, you know, of political opponents and, and other people who get in her way. But, uh, you know, as you said, the GOP isn't uh, big on identity politics. So this is, is something that she does fairly subtly. Um, there is a group that her campaign started in April uh, called Women for Nikki. So they definitely do have you know, reach out to uh, women and, and want to, uh, you know, pay some special attention to women voters. Uh, but it's uh, it's all done fairly subtly. Do we think she's concerned about losing Republican male voters? Well, I, I don't think so much of that as just that the party generally doesn't like identity politics. Uh, Democratic Party tends to talk about race and gender issues more. Republicans tend to shy away from that. And so I think there's a sense that, you know, she could turn off both women and men voters, if she talks about her gender too much or tries to use it as a argument for her candidacy. It's very different sort of from what we saw, you know, in Hillary Clinton's campaigns in uh, uh, 2008 and uh, 2016, you know, where she routinely talked about shattering the glass ceiling for, for women in politics and becoming the first uh, you know, female president. You don't hear that kind of rhetoric really at all from Haley. Does she specifically need the female GOP voters to support her, though? She needs all the voters she can get. Obviously, she's, you know, down in the polls uh, significantly to Donald Trump, along with the rest of the field. Um, women are, um, you know, an especially important group in general elections, especially suburban women tend to be uh, swing voters. And so that's one thing that her campaign is doing even in the primary now, is trying to reach out to women in the suburbs. Um, she's done a lot of events in suburban Des Moines uh, and other kind of suburban areas in Iowa where she's expected to, you know, have some of her stronger uh, turnout. She's, you know, a little bit more of a moderate Republican than a couple of the other folks in the field, and so that has more appeal in the suburbs. So it's, 
partly a gender issue. It's partly a geography issue as well. We're speaking with John McCormick, national political reporter at The Wall Street Journal. John, Nikki Haley fared pretty well in the debate. She got high marks for some of the things that she said, and she did try to differentiate herself when she was attacked for being a woman. Yeah, no, she, uh, I mean, she doesn't shy away from it uh, in, in uh, the debate in uh, uh, Alabama recently. Uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, the entrepreneur, you know, said, hey, having two X chromosomes doesn't immunize you from criticism. And, uh, you know, uh, actually, Chris Christie jumped to her defense and, you know, called her a smart and accomplished woman. But other times in the debate, you know, Ramaswamy has brought up, you know, her high heels and, uh, She's, you know, pushed back on that and, and reminded people that uh, I think he suggested that she was wearing three-inch heels, and she actually corrected him and said it was closer to five-inch heels. And she told me in an interview that, you know, she's long viewed the, uh, the height of her heels as sort of important uh, when, when doing political battle. Uh, she said he was calling them three-inch heels. I mean, the bigger the threat, the higher the heels always was one of the quotes that she gave me. Did she kind of walk the same line when she ran for governor of South Carolina? Yeah, I mean, again, that was a, you know, deeply Republican state. So she, you know, she has always talked about her gender and the ability to, you know, um, to, to, to maybe have a woman's input being different from what men might see in a political situation. I think, especially on the issue of abortion, she's she's talked about it in sort of more uh, sensitive ways, and 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 told the GOP field that you know Republicans shouldn't sort of shame women on the issue of abortion, and and should be more respectful to women when discussing the topic. Um, so that has given her a little extra. Um, you know, uh, appeal maybe on the abortion issue with some women. I'm sure, John, there are some voters who would never vote for a woman for president thinking they couldn't handle the job. But the fact that a record number of women are now governors, does that start to dispel that notion that a woman can't win the White House? Yeah, I mean, we did see a lot of uh, female governors elected in 2022, uh, a record year. And, um, you know, governorships have always sort of been viewed as the the you know, practicing ground for potential presidential candidates. So that may speak to the fact that we'll see more women down the road running for president. It's been more prominent on the Democratic side than the Republican side. But uh, Haley, you know, was uh, an early female governor in her state when she was elected in uh, 2010. Thanks, John. That's John McCormick, national political reporter at The Wall Street Journal. By the way, in a new poll conducted by American Research Group, Haley has pulled within four percentage points of frontrunner Donald Trump in New Hampshire's GOP presidential primary. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. The U.S. military has carried out retaliatory airstrikes on three drone facilities used by Iran-aligned militants in Iraq Monday after a drone attack targeted U.S. troops in Erbil. The attack left one U.S. service member in critical condition and wounded two others. The U.S. military has come under attack at least 100 times since the breakout of the Israel-Hamas war. Number two. A white Christmas indeed. Nebraska is currently enduring a dangerous snow blizzard. Nearly two inches of nonstop snow, sleet, ice rain, and zero visibility led to the closure of Interstate 80 for several hours. Patrol spokesperson Cody Thomas told ABC News Troop 
troopers have already responded to over 60 weather-related incidents. Basically all the way to the city of Lincoln and even toward Omaha as well. So nearly all of Nebraska has been impacted by this storm in many cases. Those blizzard conditions thankfully have stayed uh, north of Interstate 80. This is Nebraska's first white Christmas since 2017. Number three. U.S. health officials say flu and COVID-19 infections are expected to spike. The culprits, a new, more contagious coronavirus strain being called JN1, too many unvaccinated people and holiday gatherings. Dr. Greg Zandro, an emergency room physician in Wichita, Kansas. Holidays are always a, a tricky time. Everyone's getting together. Um, and with that comes sharing lots of things, your presence, physical presence, the presence of your, your pathogens. The new strain JN1, JN1 currently accounts for 20% of COVID-19 cases, and the CDC says it ex- is it expected to reach 50% in the next two weeks. Vaccinations are down this year by 42%. Gift cards are the second most popular present this holiday season, and yet nearly 30 percent are expected not to be used. There is a federal law that states a gift card can't expire for five years from the time it was purchased. Even so, experts say it is wise to spend those gift cards quickly. Inflation may devalue gift cards and some generic Visa or MasterCard cash cards even accrue inactivity fees if not used for more than a year. Some of the best steals and deals are expected on national used your gift card day coming up on January 20th, 2024. I only got one. Did you get any? I got quite a few, and it's one of my favorite things to use, I gotta say. (laughs) Thanks, Nicole. Gas prices haven't had a normal year in quite a while. Could 2024 be the exception? We get more from Daniel Dizivay, who covers personal finance for USA Today. Daniel, recap what's been happening with gas prices since 2020. Well, we haven't had a a normal year. Pump prices fell rather dramatically in 2020 because of the pandemic. And then prices recovered in 2021. That was kind of a recovery year. And then gas prices went up dramatically, uh, you know, during the Ukraine invasion and the sort of early months of that year, which was 2022. And then they went up further because of inflation. So we haven't had a normal, quote unquote, year in pump prices really since, uh, well, this year was was closer to normal, and it's the closest to normal that we've had in a while. Yeah, talk about what has happened in about the last two months or so. Does it seem to be kind of normalizing now? Well, gas prices started the year around $3.20, I believe. And in the summer, they spiked up to about three seventy-five, probably over 4 if you're in, you know, big cities where the costs are higher. And then they retreated. Uh, I, I, I kind of joked in the uh, in my story that it was kind of like a big glowing billboard for the federal campaign against inflation because gas prices have been down around three bucks. What are experts saying about the winter months? Well, people drive less in winter. Days are shorter. There's less kind of sustained travel going on. And I didn't know this until this article, but it's cheaper to process fuel in winter. So all those factors push prices down usually in December, January, February. Those are kind of the low ebb for uh, gas prices. So what my experts told me is we can look for the year to start with maybe even a little lower prices. I, I don't even know what the average is right now, but it's around three bucks, so maybe a little over. And, and the prices may even dip a little below that in January, February. Uh, 
Well, it depends. If if we have mild weather and less precipitation, people might drive more. If we if we're all snowbound in the north, people might drive less, and that would push prices maybe yet lower. We're speaking with Daniel Dizave, who covers personal finance for USA Today. Daniel, of course, there's so many factors that impact the oil market and gas prices. What geopolitical situations could be bad? Well, of course, we have the conflict going on in the Middle East. The, 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 the surprising thing, I guess, is that gas prices actually fell in the weeks following the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Now, it makes sense, I guess, strictly speaking, Israel and Palestine are not major oil producers, but they sit in an oil-rich region, and everything could change if that conflict were to widen, uh, maybe Daniel Divizet, who covers personal finance for USA Today. It's coming up on 30 minutes past the hour on This Morning, America's First News. Hey, it's Gordon Deal, your go-to HelloFresh holiday buddy. Let me tell you, these HelloFresh guys are my secret weapon for a chill holiday. Picture this, skipping those crazy grocery store lines and dodging expensive takeout each HelloFresh box is a treasure trove of time and savings, even for a lame in the kitchen like me. It's hassle-free with no waste, no stress. The ingredients are perfectly portioned, so I'm not blowing cash or buying too much. Honestly, it's been a game-changer in these hectic times. With HelloFresh, I'm cutting costs and still savoring amazing home-cooked meals. It's like my holiday magic in a box. Discover the HelloFresh magic yourself. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree and use code GordonFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree with code GordonFree. Delight in the tastes of the season from America's number one meal kit at HelloFresh. HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree. The top stories and expert interviews that make sense of what you care about. This is America's First News. This morning with Gordon Deal. On this Tuesday, December 26th, Jennifer Kashinka in for Gordon Deal along with Nicole Murray. Some of our top stories and headlines. U.S. airstrikes hit Hezbollah sites in Iraq after an attack on U.S. troops. Southwest cancels hundreds of flights, disrupting holiday travel again. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom collected $28 million during its domestic opening, the fourth lowest debut for a D.C. extended universal film. In NFL action yesterday, Ravens over the 49ers, Eagles over the Giants, Raiders over the Chiefs. And remembering pets that crossed over the Rainbow Bridge, that story in about 20 minutes. The homelessness problem in this country is not exclusive to major cities such as San Francisco, Chicago, or New York. Many mid-sized cities are also struggling. We get the story from Shannon Najmabadi, mid-U.S. correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Shannon, what did you find in cities such as Grand Rapids, Michigan? One thing that we wanted to look at was uh, what was happening outside of big urban centers that are often associated with homelessness, like say L.A. or New York or San Francisco, because this year the U.S. reported a record increase in the number of people experiencing homelessness, 12 percent, and federal officials said that was across the board, you know, across all kinds of different populations. And what we were hearing anecdotally from different places in the country was that they were experiencing many of the factors that were leading to increased homelessness in those big cities, except in their smaller locations, whether that was a Grand Rapids, Michigan, or, you know, a city in Kansas. Um, and so we wanted to see in one of those cities that might not historically have struggled with um, homelessness or tried to reduce homelessness because they didn't see it as a problem, what they were doing now and what their efforts were yielding 
um, because obviously their resource levels and um, a whole variety of factors are different in those kinds of places. So we zoomed in on Grand Rapids as one of those um, places, and they were unique because they'd really taken a lot of steps to try to make a debt in reducing homelessness and um, haven't solved it. You know, so it kind of demonstrates the um, the the difficulty that cities big and midsize have in you know, experiencing homelessness and then trying to reduce it completely. Shannon, what has contributed to the surge in homelessness across the country? There's a number of factors that have collided. Um, one is the end of pandemic protections. You know, you think of eviction moratoriums and federal relief dollars going into rent, a whole variety of factors that were trying to stop people from becoming homeless, like helping them stay in their homes. That collided with a number of other things, you know, inflation, um, opioid crisis, general lack of help for folks experiencing mental health crises or substance abuse substance abuse issues, and in some places an influx of migrants that um, were ending up in homeless shelters. So you had a number of things happening all at once, and of course one big thing was a housing shortage, um, and because of that increased rent in many places. We're speaking with Shannon Najmabadi, mid-U.S. correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Shannon, getting back to Grand Rapids, uh, your story points out that they tested a couple of new ways to handle the unhoused. Uh, what are they tried? Yeah, Grand Rapids was interesting to us because they really have tackled this from a number of different issues. Um, one of the things they did that was um, you've seen quite a lot is they passed two ordinances this year. One of them tries to reduce how much per- personal property people can have on um, public property, <laughs> um, and another one stops aggressive panhandling near ATMs and in certain other locations. But they also have created a homeless outreach team, which um, is made up of firefighters and mental health professionals, and they go out and do loops throughout the community trying to um, uh, help people that need help that are unhoused and then also try to head off conflicts between those people and business owners. So one morning we went out with them and they were trying to get people awake before businesses opened and asking them to move along. Um, They also have a pretty robust resource center that they've set up every Tuesday. Just a variety of groups come to a church, um, volunteers that are there to cut haircuts or do haircuts for free or wash feet. um, And then also lawyers that are able to help with legal problems and then other kinds of resource groups like uh, groups that would connect people with jobs or with housing. So it's really a one-stop shop for folks that are unhoused. So they've taken, you know, those more resource-based approaches, like providing assistance while also combining that with ordinances that limit certain kinds of behavior. Has it worked at all? It's really hard to say. You know, I, I think part of it is that the numbers for tracking homelessness are very difficult. They measure homelessness just on one night each year. Uh, I think anecdotally, they believe that it's helped quite a lot, but obviously it hasn't solved the problem. You know, between 2022 and 2023, Grand Rapids recorded an increase in homelessness that was greater than the increase nationwide. Um, And again, part of that might be just the imperfect nature of these counts. But um, I guess we'll see this year when they do this year's homeless count, the 2024 homeless count in January how much their efforts that they've taken in the last year especially have have made. Shannon, it's obviously such a complicated issue. I would think that a city like Grand Rapids or, you know, New York City, whatever, it's going Mm -hmm. to be the combination of the private resources along with the local fire departments, along with the state government and federal government and the local people. It's just a, a mass undertaking. Yeah, I think that Grand Rapids demonstrated that very well. You know, their Chamber of Commerce, for example, has been very involved funding, you know, in backing the ordinance, as I mentioned, 
organization, but also in funding different kinds of homeless um, prevention programs. They helped the local homeless coalition, for example, get a new data analyst. That's Shannon Najmabadi, mid-U.S. correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Jennifer Kashinka in for Gordon Deal. It's time now for the Mike Drop with this morning's Mike Gavin. Good morning. Well, now that Christmas is over, the debate begins about how long is too long to have the decorations up before packing them away. But most people usually make it at least to the end of Christmas Day. Not one woman who has gone viral for several years showcasing her tradition of taking down her tree and decorations by 6 p.m. on Christmas Day. Georgia Schofield, who lives with her family in the U.K., starts de-Christmasing right after dinner is done, ridding her home of everything holiday-related by the time her young kids go to bed. The latest video showing Georgia transforming her home last night has over half a million views on TikTok. But before you assume that this is some kind of super grinchy move by someone who hates Christmas, Georgia has a good reason for ending the holiday early. Her daughter's birthday is today, December 26th, so right after the Christmas decorations come down, the birthday decorations go up. I have zero problem with this. Yeah, taking down on Christmas Day? Absolutely. You've, you've never done this yourself, I assume. No, I but make it usually to it. the end of the week. Yeah, sometimes you just get tired of it. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason most people leave them the whole rest of the week is basically laziness. Nobody wants to put them away. <laughs> That's right? true. Because by the time we get to, you know, the, the couple days before New Year's, we're kind of sick of looking at them. I think most yeah. people are. I mean, want to put them away, but we're just too lazy, too fat from Christmas dinner, whatever, and don't yeah. want to do it. Yeah, definitely a tiring holiday. Uh, yeah. yeah the birthday thing makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess no so. No problem. We're, 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 we're cool with this, at least for this particular reason. Yes. And uh, if Christmas ends early, and at least Georgia made it to Christmas dinner with her family, one man was forced to cancel it altogether after a dog ruined the party and made off with his ham. <laughs> the main name, man named Luke Vandor McKay told the story on X about an incident from a couple years ago. Luke said he spent hours carefully preparing a glazed ham for the holiday before his Springer Spaniel named Huck managed to steal it and wolf down three quarters of it like a scene out of the end of the movie A Christmas Story. The incident left Luke with no meat to serve with his dinner and he jokingly declared Christmas is canceled as a result. Uh, unfortunately, Huck soon regretted his decision to go all in on the Christmas ham and have what Luke described as an unsettled night full of things uh, best not described in detail, Jim. <laughs> Thankfully, the dog did make a full recovery and was able to go for a walk to burn off all that excess ham the next day. I think this story is also uh, quite typical. Yeah, you think this happens a lot? I've yes. never heard about it happening to anybody I know, but yeah. uh, I, I enjoy Wouldn't watching it at the end of a Christmas story for sure. Whatever we dropped yesterday on the floor, the dogs were there in a half a second to yeah. scrounge around and try to find what you dropped. So. Yeah, I've, I've seen it at my brother's house where they do have to defend various foods, not an entire ham or turkey or anything, but definitely side dishes have to defend them from the dogs. Yeah, I'm sure dogs ate a lot of stuff yesterday <laughs> they shouldn't have. Good day for them too. Yes, thanks Mike. Well, if you receive gift cards this holiday season, don't just stuff them away and forget about them. Each year, tens of billions of dollars worth wind up forgotten or otherwise unused. That's when the life of a gift card gets more complicated with expiration dates or inactivity fees that can vary by state. Under a federal law that went into effect in 2010, a gift card can't expire for five years from the time it was purchased or from the last time someone added money to it. Some state laws require an even longer period, and differing state laws are one reason many stores have stopped using expiration dates altogether. While it may take card gift cards years to expire, experts say it's still wise to spend them quickly. Some 
some cards, especially generic cash cards from Visa or MasterCard, will start accruing inactivity fees if they're not used for a year, which eats away at their value. Inflation also makes cards less valuable over time. And if a retail store closes or goes bankrupt, a gift card could be worthless. If you have a gift card you don't want, one option is to sell it on a site like Card Cash or Raise. It's nine minutes before the hour. Here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says fighting in Gaza will not stop until Hamas is destroyed. Despite global calls for a ceasefire, Netanyahu names three prerequisites needed for peace. Hamas must be destroyed. Gaza must be demilitarized and the Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. Senior advisor to Netanyahu, Mark Regev, on whether Israel is open to another ceasefire deal. By beefing up our military efforts, by destroying their military machine, by taking out their senior commanders, we're placing pressure on them, which makes them more desperate for a, a timeout for some sort of temporary ceasefire. And we're willing to give that if they release hostages. This news comes after Israeli officials say Israel's war cabinet has met Monday to discuss a three-step plan to end the war in Gaza. Number two. An unaccompanied six-year-old flying on Spirit Airlines was put on the wrong flight. Spirit says the child was incorrectly boarded onto a flight to Orlando, Florida, instead of Fort Myers, where he was going to visit his grandmother. The child's grandmother, Maria Ramos, describing her panic. So I ran inside the plane to the flight attendant and I asked her, where's my grandson? He was handed over to you at Philadelphia. She said, no, I had no kids with me. Spirit has apologized for the error, but has not explained how it happened. Number three. And in other travel news, a dense fog advisory forced Southwest Airlines to cancel hundreds of flights Sunday and Monday at Chicago's Midway International Airport. Another 300, altogether 360 flights were canceled on Sunday and another 100 were canceled on Monday. While these numbers are not record-breaking, Southwest had more cancellations and delays than their rivals. Fog receded late Sunday and Southwest shifted to managing traffic on the ground at the airport. Christmas has come and gone. Holidays, holiday returns are next. Amazon allows customers to return items 30 days after the purchase. After 30 days, the recipient can get a refund for up to 80% of the total price. Walmart allows holiday returns until the end of January for anything purchased from October to December. Target offers customers 90 days for returns. Macy's has a 30-day return policy and Best Buy with a 15-day return policy. Thanks, Nicole. Good stuff to know. One tree in Central Park in Manhattan appears to be leaving a lasting impression on visitors for an unexpected and heartwarming reason. The tree serves as a pet memorial, and anyone can add their pet to the site. Located in the Ramble, one of Central Park's three woodland wood landscapes, the tree may be mistaken for a Christmas tree at this time of year, but it actually functions as a memorial with hundreds of pet photos posted by pet owners who visit the park. Each November, the tree turns into a pet memorial for about six to eight weeks, according to theforevertree.com, a website dedicated to the memorial. Pets included in the memorial are dogs, cats, birds, and more. This year, on December 16th, Central Park had a two-mile walk to the pet memorial so people in the community could add their pet pictures to the tree. 
The walk was hosted by the EverWalk Group, a nationwide nonprofit walking club. It involved participants bringing a laminated photo of a pet that had died, along with a ribbon or string to hang the photo. One 35-year-old Manhattan resident told Fox News Digital she discovered the tree while taking a stroll through the ramble. She said the tree, which is unique and special, warms her heart, and she can feel the love in each and every photo. That'll do it for this hour. For Nicole Murray and Mike Gavin, I'm Jennifer Kishinka. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.